Hey everyone, thanks for joining again. Uh, today I am speaking with Faye Rahman. Uh, Faye is an ex-Muslim. Um, she's an activist on ex-Muslim issues. Uh, I don't want to say specifically, but I see a lot like on the hijab and women's rights. Um, Faye also works for Faithless Hijabi and she's a co-host on the Out of the Fold podcast. Hi Faye, thanks for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so I was hoping we could start, if you could just give a little bit of your background. Um, I know I mentioned you're an ex-Muslim, but if it's, you know, if you came from a Shia background, Sunni background, um, if you can go into that a bit. Um, okay, so I come from a bit of a mixed background. My family originally are from Bangladesh, and when I was really young, um, they actually weren't practicing Muslims at all. Like, some of them didn't wear hijab. Um, my father, for example, didn't really pray regularly. He only prayed in Ramadan. Um, it was when I was around 11 years old when my father started to get quite religious and the uh, the family kind of followed suit and he joined a, a group called the Tablighi Jamaat who have a focus on preaching and guiding people to the religion. And um, when I was about 14, uh, we became more religious and we joined a more Salafi school of thought in that. And that's all within Sunni Islam. Okay. Um, and how long ago did you become an apostate? How long ago did you stop believing? Like, what was that process like? Um, I came out last year in October. So I identified um, as a as a non-religious person last year. But I've been an apostate since 2017. Um, so my experience with that was it was difficult because I wanted to believe. I was quite I was quite devout before I left. Um, I just couldn't reconcile my um, ideas about God and a lot of the theological things within Islam, and I just couldn't believe that the like it, the the god of Islam in his nature was very contradictory to how he described himself, and I just could not I couldn't accept that okay. as something worthy of worship. Now, like I mentioned, you do a lot of advocacy. Um, I don't specifically want to say against the hijab. I mean, you can use those words, but you're more for the way I I, I see it. Anyways, it's you're more for liberating the women so that they actually have a choice. Like, you're not sitting there saying, okay, you know, rip all the hijabs off people's heads and burn them all or anything like that. Um, I'm very much an individualist. Um, I don't really care if people remain Muslims because they want to, but I'm all about individual choice as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. Um, my main uh, sort of goal by... Uh, promoting this activism well through this activism is to normalize leaving Islam so um, from my experience I you know after I left Islam and after I you know no longer wanted to partake in the traditions of like arranged marriage and things like that my family completely disowned me they wanted nothing to do with me and I want to stop from happening um, I want to normalize everyone's experience of just choosing however they want to think Okay. Um, I want to just get back to that uh, for in a minute, but I just wanted to speak to you about the Tabliki Jamaat. Now, mm -hmm. is because I mean I, I I've read about Tabliki. I mean we have some in Montreal. Um, I don't think it's as extensive as it is in Europe. Um, 
and I've never heard of like the, the group Tabliki Jamaat here, but I mean, are they associated with the Tabliki? So it's kind of like evangelical, like if you would, you know, if you have evangelical Christianity, that's kind of what like the Tablikis are to Islam. Um, they they directly correlate Jehovah's Witnesses. They are Jehovah's Witnesses. They're just Muslims. Okay, so <laughs> they right, go uh, door to door. They preach. That is their thing. All right. Uh, okay. I mean, evangelicals. That's you know, that's kind of in the name. Like you go out and evangelize the the good word, yeah. right? So. Um, when you said they were like Jehovah's Witnesses, I thought they were like even a little bit, you know, they had, you know, how Jehovah's Witnesses, I mean, they're not quite Christian, but they, they've got some really far out ideas. So I thought, you know, maybe the Tablikis went uh, further out. Well, Tablikis, some of them do have quite extreme ideas. <laughs> um, yeah. But they they have their, um, their, their, I think in India, they have a different name. They're called the Deobandis. Okay. Um so uh, there are definitely branches within, but their main thing is that they go door to door. They go to different countries. They just spread Islam. Okay. Um, okay. So getting back to what you'd been speaking of earlier, like the normalizing uh, yeah. coming out as an apostate. Uh, I don't know about the UK as much, but at least in North America, you are seeing, you know, there's been conferences by a group uh, called ISNA. So the, um, Islamic Association of North America and right. a couple of the themes of the conferences were specifically how to stop apostasy so you know mm -hmm. a few years back they would just say oh no, no there's no such thing as the next Muslim people don't leave mm -hmm. now they're actually spending time and, yeah acknowledging it but not only acknowledging it acknowledging it as a threat and as something to counter right um, is, is there things like that going on in Great Britain like are they is it at least admitted or is it still kind of um, we don't want to talk about it it doesn't exist or the closest thing i've seen on that um we have some um i would say trophied that is or people who spread the religion who do a lot of that one on the streets we have a lot of trophied ones one of them is called that one man the other one's called <laughs> ali dawa and it's yeah they're, they're very very derivative yeah. um and from what I can see, they don't really acknowledge it as something that people actually choose. They put it down to like emotional choices or whatever. Um, but not to the extent, I, I've never seen a lecture to stop apostasy. Um, there have definitely been people talking about it, um, but not in the, I don't I, I feel like they're just talking about it to discourage it. Like they, they show, show, uh, sort of display us as very, emotional depressed emo kids that you know want to rebel against our parents kind of thing <laughs> okay um like to me that's a bit odd it's just because like i said i'd never heard about anything like that in the uk because i mean i see that you know ex-muslims i don't want to say they're more vocal but i think it's a little bit more organized and there's a lot more in the uk than there would be in north america I mean, there's groups like, you know, ex-Muslims of North America. There's another group that's Mus called Muslimish, which is ex and you know, reform questioning Muslims. Right. But, I mean, in the UK, I see a lot more and I see... Like I said, I mean, well, we have we have the Council of Ex-Muslims. We have uh, Faith to Faithless. Oh, yeah, Faith to Faithless. Um, I'm not really aware of any others. Yeah, uh, there was 
I think like a specific London group as well. Um, but I, I'm just also saying like there, it's not specifically maybe just in those groups, but a large number of people um, are speaking out. I mean, I know Quilliam isn't necessarily an ex-Muslim group, but you know they want to do reform. They're anti-extremism. Yeah. Uh, you also have a lot of like secular societies and humanist societies, which I mean I know we have them. There's some in the states and Canada, but for some reason I just I, I was thinking also because of a larger population of Muslims in the UK than there are in North America, you um, have more so more apostates. There are, there are certainly more Muslims in the UK than there are in the US. Also, the the attitude of Muslims here in the UK are very very different to those in the US. Um, and I don't know if I, if you want me to get into the sort of the nitty gritty of that, but the 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 type of Muslim is very very different here to the, than that of the US. Um, US is also a much larger country um, as compared to our tiny little island. So it, it I don't know. Yeah. Okay. No. I mean. Okay. We can we can talk about that because that's actually kind of interesting because I've kind of discussed this myself before. To get into North America, so to get into Canada or the United States, um, I mean Mexico is technically North America, but I don't see people going there um you know you it requires funds it requires a bit of wherewithal right you're you can't just yeah you know get into europe and then you know go over to france and take a ferry over to the uk i mean i, I realize the uk is still an island and it's not att attached to europe but it's much easier to get into the uk than it is to get into north yeah. america well, then also with the uk it was the after uh, world war ii when they brought in all the, the people from South Asia, right? And then yeah. generational thing going on. Yeah. So with the US, um, the Muslim population there are mainly there due to, um, they're, they're quite rich families. They're quite well off. They came there for business. Whereas mm -hmm. with the UK, because the UK owned, had an empire at one point, um, through the Commonwealth, we had a lot of immigrants from um, the Indian subcontinent, and other African countries that we had, you know, a hold on, and Arab nations that we had a hold on. So we had a lot of immigrants from there, and they they're not necessarily from very well-off families. They just they came here to have a better life. Um, so what happened with that is that a lot of Muslims that came here didn't really integrate with the British society very well, and they created. Um, not necessarily gated communities, but very closed communities. Um, so if you come to London, for example, you'll see all manner of people, all colors, all creeds, everything. You'll find a good mix of people. But you'll also find that, that people of similar backgrounds will stick to the same people. They won't necessarily integrate as well as people in the U.S. might. And I know I'm making very broad generalizations, but it's just something that has been observed quite recently. Um, yeah okay on, on the integration thing again I think there's a difference also I think there's three different stories if you want to talk about this there's the UK um, there's Canada and then there's the United States I think Canada is somewhere between the two the United States had the model of the melting pot which was here is the American identity everyone's welcome to come here but you know you must take this on so there wasn't this push for multiculturalism, which I think is multiculturalism is inherent. Like ghettoization is inherent to multiculturalism. Whereas if you have the melting pot idea, 
here is the identity. You are welcome to come here. You're welcome to join, take on this identity. And so that immigrants coming now will have taken on that identity by the time, you know, more immigrants come in a generation later, let's just say, right? It's, it's right. all you're always, whereas the multiculturalism thing, you know, all cultures are equal. We should value all cultures. And I'm not saying that the melting pot doesn't value other cultures and other values, but the multiculturalism thing put it on, it made it so hard to criticize something from another culture. And then I yeah. think in the UK, because it had been going on for longer than it has been going on in Canada, and that ghettoization might have been a mutual thing. Um, I'm not claiming racism or anything like that, but people were like, okay, you know, we're, we're bringing these working class folk. We don't want them to be in our neighborhood, so we'll build them a neighborhood over there type of thing. I don't know. I, I wasn't there, I, and I haven't studied enough to... But that might have been part of it as well. But so I think that's like Canada's kind of in between. Um, there are very ghettoized neighborhoods, especially in a place like Toronto. Uh, Montreal has them. Vancouver has them. Yeah. Um, and I, I've been in the UK and I've seen that. I've seen, you know, different neighborhoods. And then I've seen the integration thing, especially with like I have family in Birmingham. And, you know, one of my cousins, her and her husband own this huge law firm. They hire about hundred lawyers mm -hmm. yet they talk about how they're not able to fit into society and it's it's nothing they've done is wrong it's always the fault of you know it's the white british who, who who hold us back and i don't see how they can say they're being held back you know you own yeah. a law firm you are engaging 100 lawyers working for you plus who knows how many other people like it doesn't seem like they were held back to me anyways yeah um I don't know, to be honest. In my family, we would always complain about the British having a hold on everything, even though we were in their country. Um, but I, I've never personally had a problem integrating. But there are people who will seek out these communities which create their own little subcultures. For example, we have a lot of um, different types of mosques now. We have Pakistani mosques where the majority will be Pakistani people. We have Somali mosques where the majority will be uh, Somali people. We have Arab mosques where the majority will be Arab people. And it's it's very racially divided. And if it's not racially divided, then it's very sectarian. They'll have different groups of Muslims gathering at one mosque. And then there'll be, and that's why you always see fights and arguments around Ramadan, which is now coming up, about the moon sighting. And people will be fighting and complaining about that. And it's it's just this refusal, even amongst Muslims, even amongst mm. Muslims, to just integrate and just live with each other peacefully. Um, peacefully in the sense that it's, you know, there's no sort of backhandedness and um, no talking talking about other people's mosques and other people's cultures that, that they can't even sort of assimilate with themselves. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's, okay, that, that's a hypocrisy I, I see a lot. Um, you know, mm. they talk. They, they talk about the the ulema and you know, the, the, oh, Muslims are brothers and sisters. But yeah, that you know, Pakistanis have their own mosques. I mean, I I have family in India and Pakistan, and I have some members of my family who, you know, oh, they're Pakistani and they're scum. And I'm like, well, they're your family. You say that about them as well. They're like, oh, they're Pakistani and they're scum. So, two groups of Muslims, both Sunni, both you know. Like I said, in a in a family, but because of some arbitrary border, 
they hate each other. Yeah. Um, it's ridiculous. Yep. Okay, getting back to the integration thing for a second. I, just because I've, I've looked at studies and I've looked at reports, but I obviously I don't live there. Um, yeah. You know, you know, they talk about how, you know, immigrants from the West Indies or even from, you know, let's say from India, like the Sikhs and the Hindus are better at integrating than the Muslim uh, immigrants. Like, do you, do you notice that? Is it, or is that just, you know, someone pushing a certain viewpoint or something? From what I see, um, yeah. The, see, I don't really know what to attribute it to, though. Is it the Islam that's not integrating them? Or is it because um, there's, like, this residue pride that they're holding because of Islam? I don't know. Um, but I, from what I've seen... Um, People from the West Indies and Hindus, Hindu Indians, do tend to integrate a lot better than um, either first generation or second generation Muslims. Um, okay, because uh, I, I want to stick on this integration thing because I've this is one of the things I've argued about that uh, you know if you I'm all for immigration, yeah, but. but you know, it has to be vetted. It has to be within reason. You can't just say, open the doors, let everyone in. But I always said one of the things about immigration, though, is, and it shouldn't just be for immigrants. It should be for all citizens. It's, you know, the government has, you have rights that the government affords you, but you also have responsibilities and obligations. And I, I think integration is one of them for, you know, for if you want to immigrate somewhere. Yeah, you know, completely agree. You should try to integrate. You know, I'm not saying forget your whole lifestyle, but... The integration thing again with the. Uh, I started seeing it in, in Canada, a little bit because I kind of saw the evolution here. When we arrived in Montreal in '75, I believe there was only one mosque, and it was shared uh, between the Sunni and the Shia. Then then it separated. Um, then you know, you had a Sunni mosque and Shia mosque, and then you started getting more mosques of each kind. So. You know, people who came from South Asia, and I can only speak to South Asia, I can't really speak so much for, you know, people from the Middle East or Africa or anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. Like, my parents had a very, very relaxed version of Islam. We moved here in 75, right? So they they weren't that extreme. I don't think there was much extremism, maybe more so in Pakistan and in India, because my mom grew up in Karachi, my dad grew up in India, in Hyderabad. Um yeah, and Pakistan so, is a little little crazier than India. Yeah. But, you know, again, my mom was in college in the 60s. My parents got married in 67. You know, so it's not like... I, I still don't think it was as extreme then because I see pictures of my mom and her friends and they're all in... Not one of them is wearing a hijab. They're all in, like, the, the you know, the kurta pajamas, the, the, the shalva yeah. khamis. Like, they're wearing those. They're, you know, trying to all look fashionable in sunglasses and stuff. Um, <laughs> You know, but, I have pictures of my mom like that. <laughs> but then as they started going to mosques, as more and more mosques started being built, and as, you know, again, this started, I guess, in about the 80s when, when Saudi started spending more money, mm. you would start to see second generation being a little bit more strident than the first generation. Well, see, here in the 80s, it wasn't as, um, I don't think it, it changed in the 80s. For us, it was definitely after the 9-11 attacks, where people started becoming more 
religious because I, I guess they, they just thought that their their entire culture was under attack. But to talk about the the whole identity and culture thing, like even though I wasn't from a religious family originally, so when I was a little kid, I wasn't from an, uh, a very, very Muslim family. They were very relaxed. They had a very like, you know, go to the mosque every so often, you'll be fine kind of religion. Um, but even then, like my mother would only cook Indian food. We would only wear Indian clothes. Um, and it it was just this separatism from everyone else. Like um, we couldn't share um, the same culture as a white person. We couldn't share the same culture as a black person. It, it was very, very racist in many different ways. Like one of the ways my mom used to scare one of my, uh, some of my siblings was by saying that if you don't behave, then the black man next door is going to get you. Okay, sorry, just on that, my grandfather used to tell me that when I was a little kid. If, yeah. I, if I was misbehaving, um, he would say that, oh, if you don't behave, we're going to marry you off to the black girl down the street. Yeah, <laughs> it was like super racist. <laughs> yeah. Like she would literally just be like, Hala beta. like she, it's just, it's good, he's going to take you. He's going to take you away. And um, my sister was dead scared of him for no reason. He was a lovely Nigerian, like, Christian guy. Like, <laughs> never, heard, never heard a fly. But my mom used to use him as, as, like, she used to, I don't know if she used to view him like that, but she used to say stuff like that. Um, and also when my, when my grandma, one of my grandmas lives in Bangladesh. When she came here um, to the UK, she saw a lot of Somali people and she would say that they all looked the same. <laughs> she'd be walking around <laughs> saying that and um it's just like this this constant othering and i don't know if if that's just part of like indian culture if indians are like that or if it's muslims in like um south asian muslims who are like that i i couldn't answer that i mean I, that's, that's because they're there my dad was when we first moved here, my dad, uh, we were staying with family and then, you know, for a couple months until my parents got everything set up. And then my dad specifically moved us to a neighborhood that wasn't ghettoized, like where my uncles were living and, and, you know, friends of theirs and friends of family was starting to be a little ghettoized neighborhood. My dad would said no I want my family to integrate I came I left India to come to Canada not to a little India so maybe that was yeah. because of my dad but and then at that point it was just you know South Asian so it was Hindu Muslim Sikh all kind yeah. of living together because they could do the okay we're, we're from India and they weren't large enough on their own to form you know, separate neighborhoods but as it progressed then you did have some divisions in there but I, I still think like the South Asian neighborhoods, except for maybe the Indian and the Pakistani. But again, that depends on uh, how long they've been here. Um, you know, they'll 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 well, not they'll not mix too much. Well, you might know in London we have a huge Bengali community that lives in the in the east of London, and one of the reasons why my grandfather probably couldn't integrate. I don't know if this was the reason, but I'm guessing this is the reason. And my grandfather brought my father's side of the family here. Um, and my my father and you know his siblings were first generation immigrants here, um, and the reason why my grandfather couldn't integrate with the other Bengalis and live in a Bengali ghettoized area was because he had sought asylum here in England because he was a fugitive in Bangladesh. 
So he had every, for all intents and purposes, um, did not want to integrate with other Bengalis. He just wanted to sort of continue living his life in the UK. And for the most part, up until my father became quite religious when I turned 11, we had more or less assimilated. His fam- his side of the family had more or less assimilated. They, you know, they were wearing westernized, well, I say westernized, they were wearing like jeans and tops and, you know, they weren't wearing any hijabs. They weren't really uh, praying often. Um, so it was very, very westernized up until he became religious. Okay. Um Getting back to your advocacy, because uh, we were we recently talked about um, FHFM, and you know you you talked about like a bit about the hijab, and uh, it's just because this thing came out on Sports Illustrated yesterday. Yeah. And okay, some of the okay, like. Uh, <laughs> I, see, I see people freaking out on Twitter, and it's just like, okay, you know what? I don't. I'm opposed to the hijab. I think it's a stupid move. I think it's dumb. But, but it's also not a hijab. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's just, I mean, like, I, I, I can understand you know being opposed to it, and I could say I'm opposed to it, and then writing something long form. Um, it's just, I, I, I people, the, the outrage is just just a bit much. I think. People have been tweeting at me and messaging me, wanting me to say something about this. But honestly, I don't really have much to say about it. Um, I mean, if if that is what Muslim women want to wear when they go to the beach or whatever, I mean, <laughs> what am I going to do? You know, yeah. uh, it's definitely I'm not saying it's not a problem. It's definitely got an agenda behind it. I'm not saying that. But it's uh, it's so moot by this point. Like it's first of all, it's not a hijab. That's not what a hijab looks like. Go to Iran. That's what a hijab looks like. And like that's just the Salafi in me that's coming out. It's just like that is not a hijab. I don't know what that is. <laughs> that is not a hijab. And um, the second thing is, you know, like I don't care. It's it's a sports magazine somewhere that someone reads. <laughs> You know, it's just like I, one of the funniest things came into my head when I saw that picture. I was like, finally, Islam has learned to sell sex. Like, it's finally got there. And um, it, you know, I don't, I, to me, to be honest, like, I see it as a form of reform. And if, if that's what Muslim women are going to be wearing from like 10 years from now, it's not really an issue for me. Yeah. Okay. That, that's just it. Like, I was kind of on the same page. I, you know, I'm a, I'm opposed to the hijab. I'm opposed to this modesty culture. I'm opposed to forcing women to wear it. But that's the thing. Like the hijab is not just a piece of cloth. It's also an idea. The idea is to be modest. And yeah. a, a skin tight burkini and posing, go you know, as sexy as you can oh, in a skin tight. Posing like a page three sun model, basically. Yeah, you know, and all made up. And, and not there's anything wrong with putting on, you know, like, but it's just. That's all of that is so counter to what the hijab is supposed to be, and to say, yeah. well, this is the hijab. But then I get, you know, uh, I, I get what, you know, maybe you're trying to modernize it, like you said, maybe it's someone's form of reform. But you know, this is not a conversation to be having on a Sports Illustrated cover, though, and it's not something, you know, and to debate this on Twitter, I think, is counterproductive. I mean, nine out of ten buyers of that magazine is going to be a man. I mean, yeah, <laughs> and, it, and it's going to be a north. What do you of, want me to uh, say? Uh, <laughs> nine out of ten 
people who buy that magazine will be probably a male. And, yeah. you know, and nine out of 10 of those nine out of 10 will probably be North American males who are more into, you know, American football and basketball and hockey than they are into anything else. It's not, it's not even going to pass them. Like yeah. it, the only reason that people are outraged by it is because people are taking pictures of it and spreading it on the internet. Yeah. Like if it was just one of those things, mm. like it was just in this magazine and then it died mm. the next day, mm. it, it would be nothing. See, like I have issue with Nike selling a sports hijab, not so much that, okay, women who want to play sports, but they want to cover their hair, they, they have something, that's fine, but, you know, pushing in this as this progressive thing. I have an issue, like, if you want to sell yeah. a sports hijab, sell, sell a sports hijab, fill your boots, make some money, but don't it sell it. Whatever, but I mean, like, like I said, don't sell it, promoting it as a symbol of empowerment, because it's not. And it was the same thing in the U.S. after the the last Olympics. You had that hijabi fencer, and then you had another yeah. Muslim woman who was a track runner. And the mm -hmm. track runner did better in her sport than the fencer did in her sport. Yet they made yeah. a big deal about this Muslim woman who was fencing because she was wearing a hijab. So is that runner a lesser Muslim, or is she worth less because she doesn't wear the hijab? That's where my issue with this kind of thing is. It's it's these it's the agenda. Um, it's it's the agenda because I was the fencer was wearing a hijab and the other one wasn't right. Yeah. The track runner, and it that I think that's like one is more obviously Muslim than the other one. So it's it's very much pushing an agenda, and that's what I don't like. Um, I mean, I don't know. Like we have all these protests in Iran, and it's not. I feel like in, in our circles, in atheist circles and in ex-Muslim circles, it's talked about. But in every other circle, it's, 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 it's nothing, you know, where people are being incarcerated. Is that the right word? Like they're being imprisoned. Yeah, yeah incarcerated. And, sorry. Yeah. Um, but they're being imprisoned and they're being hurt and they're being abused for not wearing a, a piece of cloth on their head outside like any normal, should, any normal person should be able to. Um, and it's just like, an, it's not even news, right? But when it comes to, you know, this model wearing a hijab in a sports magazine or this Muslim fencer or they release a new BuzzFeed video about the hijab, it's all over the place. People are always talking about it. I feel like, I feel like people should say whatever they want to say. So this hijab thing with the, with the sports magazine and the fencing and whatever, that should be in the news. But there should also be the other side talking about the people who are being abused in the name of this piece of cloth, you know? Like, yeah. it, it should be fair representation, and that's the problem, is that there isn't a fair representation for both stories. Yeah, and it's, okay, that, I think part of it, and I I try to give people the benefit of the doubt here, even though I, I disagree with, I, like, I call it, you know, benevolent bigotry, because to me, it seems like that they're 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 coming. They want to do good. They don't want to be racist. So, if we call out the hijab, are we being racist? Are we being that? And it's just like you're hurting the people you want to help. And it's um, you know my best case scenario for it is calling it misplaced altruism. But to me, it is bigotry. And it's but it, you know they're trying to be good about. It. They're trying to do good, but it's it's just wrong. It's, you know, good intentions lead to hell sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. 
Um, and it's, I don't know, I don't really know how to counter it besides just just continuing to make a bigger fuss about it. Um, with like all the people who are trying to tell me <laughs> that I should be talking about this model, I mean, I don't know the person, I don't know what her thoughts were in this. I mean, I'm sure she just, she's a model. Yeah. So, she, you know, so her whole idea is against the hijab. Hijab is about covering all of that, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, for her, if that was her way of like rebelling against the system while remaining a Muslim, I mean, come on, she's doing her best. But I, I understand the people who are trying to say that this was like, um, I don't know what it's called. They were just trying to virtue signal yeah. their way into being like progressive-minded, liberal, you know. Yeah, it's, I, I don't get it. I mean, okay, on this same topic, this was a couple of years ago in New York City. And there was mm. only a, a couple of people I saw talking about this um, in a certain way. Now, there was there, this woman who, uh, well, woman, she was a young girl. She was, you know, senior in high school or just started college and she was on this she was on the subway then she went to the police because apparently someone tore the hijab off her head and she filed a police report she went home then mm. it later came out that she had lied because she lost her hijab and she was afraid of what her father was going to do and it, then that came out and then i believe her father shaved her head for lying about taking off the hijab most of the people were like, okay, this is a hoax, blah, 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 blah. And they were, you know, first everyone was like, oh my God, this is horrible. How could, you know, this happen? It's racism, which, you know, if it had happened, yes, it's racism. It's wrong. It shouldn't have happened. People, but then when it was a hoax, it was all, everyone was talking about the hoax. But look at this woman and look at how scared she was that she had lost it. And that, that she, she filed a fake police report. Yeah, because she was afraid of what her father was going to do. And yeah. right there, there's a story. Right there, they could have worded that in that way to maybe make people understand that you know even in the states even in canada even in the uk like it's it's not always a choice it's not and we should make this about the choice and forget the piece of cloth for the moment but let's make it about the choice and let's push for that choice you know mm -hmm. i guess with the choice issue first of all it's very difficult it's it's like identity politics it's like with any identity politics, with race, religion, uh, gender, sexual orientation, it's it's very difficult to talk about because people's emotions are there. Um, so first bringing up the subject is becomes an issue. Second of all, I think it's very difficult to monitor choice, especially when when people's families are like this, where there's the, the there isn't the like the the voiced threat of anything but it's just there it's like an, an emotional uh, manipulation where it's just like you know something's gonna happen if you do something like the the year and a half where I was sort of pretending to be a Muslim when I really wasn't I was living with family I was really really scared that um, I would lose my my scarf whenever I was out because I you know I wouldn't wear it at work I wouldn't wear it around friends and I would always be looking for it on my way home. Um, and it wasn't like I, you know, no, anybody was going to do anything to me. It was just the fear of knowing that something was going to happen. Either somebody yelling at you or worse. You know? Like it. Yeah. I mean, so okay. I, S sorry. Go ahead. I don't know. 
I don't know how you would monitor choice because technically, if anybody asked me like um, when I when I was practicing, but I was doubting if hijab was my choice, I would have said yes. But if somebody had asked me, and nobody ever did, but so if somebody had asked me, would you have the choice to take this off, or what would happen if you took this off? I wouldn't have known how to answer that question. Yeah. Okay. I realize that. I mean, I, I've said it too. Like, how much of a choice is it if you're told? I know you weren't, but a lot of people yeah. are from uh, you know from the, a young age that if you don't wear this piece of cloth, you're not a good girl. Um, you know, if if a, if a girl doesn't wear it, it you know hurts her chance of being married. It hurts. Uh, you know, her, her oh, I was brother. told all of that. Yeah, no, but but I mean, if you're told this and indoctrinated this from a very young age, yeah, it's 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 hard to call that a choice, then, right? It's it's you are doing this because you're told. I mean, yeah, you have the choice, but if you don't, you're going to go to hell. You know, how much of a choice is that, really? Right? Like, yeah, you know, I I, I get all that, but uh, I think that, that I don't think that children should be put into it for no, sure. No, I think I, that. That should be stopped completely. Yeah. I see little kids, like I started wearing it. My mom put me in a hijab when I was like five years old and I've, I had been wearing it until I was like 21. But like, I hate that idea of having tiny little kids running around in headscarves because the whole point of a headscarf is to hide your beauty from men. Mm. And you know, what is there to hide when you're a, when you're a baby essentially? Yeah, no, that's okay. I agree with you there. It should not, women, like young girls should not be, should not have it on. Um, you know, you're going to have to come up with some arbitrary age. Maybe, you know, ideally, I guess it should be the age of majority, but, you know, if they want to start a little bit younger, maybe 16, like around the time you can drive or something, but, you know. Oh, I don't think that a lot of Muslims would sit well with that one. No, no, because I, girls yeah. <laughs> girls, would, girls, Islamically speaking, have to start wearing it once they start their period. Okay, I, I know all that, but I'm st <laughs> I'm still, you know, there's a lot of things you're supposed to do Islamically, which you know it doesn't quite fit in with a, you know, a, a liberal society. I know, uh, but yeah, no, I feel uh, like I was talking about this on on our podcast that I do with. Um, out of the fold and I think that we need to wean people off slowly to maybe make the age like 12 or something and then slowly raise the bar yeah um you know but yeah, there's I don't know. yeah like again this is you know there were like this is such a you know the, this is such a divisive topic because you know how you know as soon as you start talking about it, it's like how dare you tell people you know how dare you tell women what they can and can't wear I'm like I'm not I'm talking about we're talking about choice. Yeah, exactly. But it's it, it still comes, you know, because like you said, the identity politics, and it's just, you know, like, how dare you say this, and how dare you... And it's, and it's coming on all sides, like, you know, uh, how... Again, like, with the Sports Illustrated thing, oh, how dare you put a model... And, I, you know, I agree with that. Like, it's modesty culture. I think it's all wrong, and I don't think it's, you know, it's a... It, it's not something to promote, but it's not like they were ideally promoting the hijab. But, yeah, it's... Like, I... I think we should, you know, like I said, start at least pushing the choice option. So, yeah, you know, if you can in places like Iran, at least get the the criminal penalties taken away. Yeah, you know, if you can get those taken away, then maybe you can have the social discussion where things will change in people's homes, right? Yeah, as long as you have that threat of jail hanging over you, 
it's almost that's 100% not a choice <laughs> yeah you know and and then you but then you, you know you, it's almost impossible to have a reasonable discussion at that point too but right? the problem with that is that people aren't talking about that oh, no, people I'm, aren't talking yeah. about the rules in Saudi Arabia and Iran and all the other Arab countries that make it compulsory for Muslim women to cover did you just call Iran an Arab country oh my god the hate mail you're gonna get <laughs> <laughs> I, I I work with Arabs. I saw I saw all of the hatred coming. There's loads of people who say Egyptians aren't Arabs, Tunisians aren't Arabs, Algerians aren't. I don't care. They're all to me. They're all Arabs. They all speak the same language. Well, no, Iranians don't. Iranians speak Persian. Iranians Iranians don't. That's why I said Iran, Saudi Arabia, and all the other Arab countries. Oh, okay. So yeah. Yeah. No. No. But, I mean. Okay, but I'm yeah. I'm actually one of those people who, who who's a stickler on the North North Africa thing, just because, again, the, the, the well-meaning people from the West, it's a Western imperialization, you know, colonization, all this. There was Arab colonization. I mean, yeah. you know, Arabs themselves, fourteen hundred. Muslims like to ignore that. Yeah, but no, but a lot of people do. A lot of people are ignorant of that fact. Like, you know, North Africans. Were were basically Berbers, and if you and like, okay, so Algerian, Tunisian, and Moroccan were basically Berbers, and then with mm-hmm. the with the Egyptians, it was Copts and Berbers, right? Mm-hmm. So there was cultures were wiped out long time ago, and yes, they're all Arab speaking countries now. And I mean, if you do a search of Arab countries, I mean, they include Somalia. How is Somalia an Arab country? Somalia is not an Arab country. <laughs> no, but they include Somalia as you know on a list of Arab countries. It, it could be Arab speaking. I that I'll accept. I spent like a quarter of my <laughs> life with Somalians. Trust me, they're not Arabs. Well, no, I, I know that, but like I said, but but there you go. Like, okay, they're Arab, it's an Arab country. Like, no, it's not. You know, it, mm. it's it's just. Um, well, the reason they do that, uh, the reason that Muslims do that, is that there's a narration. I'm not sure if it's a, if it's from the Prophet himself, but there's a, an Islamic narration that says that anyone who speaks Arab is an Arab. So anyone, a white person, a yellow person, a brown person, anyone who speaks Arabic is an Arab. Okay, well, I'd, I'd never heard that. Um, mm. Okay, actually, just sticking with this because uh, how. I, I would see this in my family. Like I would, I've gone back to India quite a bit, and um, you know, it was one thing. Like, like my dad was always proud of the fact that he originated. Well, his family originated in Yemen. Um, it being a few generations that they were in India, uh, okay. and you know, then, but but this love hate relationship that I've seen from my family in India and Pakistan with Arabs, and especially Saudi Arabia. You know, the, mm-hmm. oh my God, it's the most perfect place. If, if we could live there, it'd be so great. We're right next to Mecca, blah, 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 blah. And then at the, oh, look at these Arabs. They're, they're, you know, they treat us so badly. You know, and it just, this love-hate relationship, uh, even in the language that they would change. Uh, like in Urdu, there's there's a couple of things. Like they changed uh, the, you, before when you said goodbye, everyone would say khudafis. Um, mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden in the late 80s, people started telling me I should say alafis because khuda is... The, the Urdu and the Persian word for God and Allah is the Arabic word and we have to speak it in Arabic. And it just, that was insane. Did you see that in like Bengali communities or is is that specifically in Indian, Pakistani? We, we used to say Khudafis. No, but um, I mean like the, the, the love-hate thing with the Arabs, like did you, is there... With the Arabs, 
Not in my family. I went to a Muslim girls' school. Most of my classmates were Arabs, so there wasn't much of that. My dad actually had a lot of Arab friends. Um, if we talk about my grandma, she the lady had, hated everyone. <laughs> she, she hated black people. She hated Arab people. She hated white people. She hated everybody. She hated everybody but like Bengalis from her like her city or town. Um, and even then, she would she would still bitch about people from there. Um, but that, that's what I was saying. Like, there's always there always seems to be this very skin color based judgments on people from South Asians, um, Bengalis, Pakistanis, Indians, and I'm not sh- entirely sure why. Um, but in terms of Arabs and what people would say, what people in my family would say after we became religious, is that. Like, I, I studied Arabic for five years in school, and I was considered, like, really good for doing that, even though I don't really know it fluently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people who said Arabic words, like, Ahi, or, which means brother, and that's how you just, like, talk to somebody, or Ukhti, for sister, or, like, um, switching out different phrases for thank you, like, Jazakallahu khairan, instead of just saying thank you. Um, and you know saying alhamdulillah and the whole spiel when somebody sneezes like all of that um it it was a clear arabicization but then like my mom wasn't a very uh, extroverted person for for very obvious reasons she was a muslim lady <laughs> she just stayed at home for most of her day but also the friends that she had were mainly bengali people and if not bengali people then somali people because she really liked them um but she she didn't like Arabs. Uh, one because they were in the ones that we knew were very um, not generous, but they would flaunt their wealth a lot, and she didn't like that. Um, and I think that's what the grievance is: is that the Arabs are, and in a lot of cases, when like a South Asian Muslim meets an Arab Muslim, they're often more well off than they are, and there's some jealousy there. Um, and that's what my mom didn't like about Arabs. In the in the case of my dad, my dad didn't hang out with the best of characters, honestly. Like, he thought they were really religious, but they were very obviously not very good people. Um, but he would hang out with everyone, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, okay, the, the, the Arab thing. I remember, okay, before we moved to Canada, so I'm in school in India, and I was in kindergarten, mm-hmm. and it was the first week of school or so, I'm not sure the exact... Uh, but we had to pick a language class. Yeah. Uh, my family spoke Urdu. I would speak Urdu at home. We had yeah. a choice of an Urdu class or an Arab class, Arabic mm-hmm. class. I chose Urdu because to me in my little whatever five-year-old head, that seemed logical because we speak Urdu, I speak Urdu at home, I'm going to be writing in Urdu, I should learn how to... <laughs> yeah. And then, but the Arabic class was actually a Quran class, right? They, they teach you Arabic by re- teaching the Quran. And mm-hmm. so I get home, and then my brother asked me, you know, like, why weren't you? In? And I said, and then my mom's like, why didn't you go to that class? I'm like, well, I took Urdu classes. And my parents were so pissed off. My mom comes with me <laughs> to school the next day, gets me out of that class, gets me in the other one. Because <laughs> I'm like, I didn't know. I'm like, it, like I said, to me, it made more sense to learn the Urdu than the Arabic. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it, it 100% does <laughs> make more sense to, like, even now. I, I wasted so much time. <laughs> Arabic. I'm very, very good at languages, but Arabic is one of the most complicated languages. I think it's like listed as the fourth most complicated language to learn. 
And it, it was one of the things I struggled with with Islam was that if God revealed a book in any language, why would he choose Arabic? You know, like what percentage of people spoke Arabic at the time? Like maybe like 4% of the planet. And it, it just made no sense to me that he would do that. Um, but also like the, the complexities of learning it and the reverence that people have for the language. Like, I don't know if um, people back home used to do this, but whenever, if the Quran, God forbid, touched the floor, we would have to kiss it. Yeah, I know. There was there was all kinds of weird things like that. I mean, it's just... And then we stopped doing that after we became Salafis because we realized it wasn't a thing. We just said Astaghfirullah and then we put it back on the shelf. <laughs> but no, really no, but I mean, it's, it's, um, it's these little idiosyncrasies and they, like, a lot of religions, all religions have them. I mean, there's... Yeah, there's and there's I one I would also hear stories about people going to Mecca and like if there was Arabic written on the floor, people would kiss it because it's it's such a like divine language, it shouldn't be on the floor. But really all that's written is like directions or the toilet, it's just a sign. And it's it's just ridiculous. I, I don't know what they do in Dubai because all the hotels in Dubai that mm -hmm. I like I because I, I, I worked uh, I worked in Afghanistan and whenever we left we'd fly through Dubai, so all yeah. the hotels in Dubai had a, um, the Qibla, but they'd mark it on the ground, so on the floor yeah. of the hotel room. So, I mean... That's actually really handy, because <laughs> nobody knows what the Qibla is at any given time. Yeah, I know. Uh, my mom used to have, uh, I think it was, was it my mom or my grandmother? They had a Janemaz with a with a compass, like a Qibla compass. Yeah, so did we, but I never knew how to use it. <laughs> yeah, it's just... But, but I mean, I, I I actually brought that up with my folks. Uh, I'm like, okay, the world is round. They're like, yes. I go, so whether you face east or west, you're eventually facing Kaaba. <laughs> no, but it, it, it's true. Like, <laughs> it's a globe. <laughs> you know, technically, I guess your your gaze goes off into space. But what do what do people do that are directly like behind the Kaaba? I, I don't know. Like, are directly on the other side of the world. Yeah, I, like, do I, they just go in any direction? The freedom of just praying in any direction. <laughs> I, I'm not sure because I think it's also you work, you walk around the Kaaba, go from east to west type of thing, right? Like at Hajj, I believe. So I've it's, never it's, been to Hajj. Yeah, no, but it, it, yeah, it's one of the things I, I've never been either. But it's one of the things you're supposed to do. But I believe they walk around it, going in it's the direction of the. Yeah, I'm just thinking maybe it's because you know you're praying in the direction of the sunrise, even though Islam's not really there's nothing in Islam to even suggest there was like any kind of well, sun worship. But I, actually, I, during the life of the Prophet, originally they were facing Jerusalem when they prayed. Yeah, and then they changed it halfway through when the Jews were making fun of them. Yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah, like that's another thing. I mean, they they prayed to Jerusalem because that's the you know that's where he went for the night journey, right? He, you know, that's another thing I make fun of. It's because like he flew from, uh, was it Mecca oh, to Jerusalem no. and then from Jerusalem to the moon? And I'm like, I what? think it was more a plagiarism of the Jewish religion. And um, the reason why the Jews would laugh at him for that was because they were basically ripping off their religion. Um, and that's when I think they were in the middle of prayer, actually, when that revelation came down in quotes, revelation yeah. came down and they changed directions while they were praying to the Kaaba. That's, uh, I don't know. It's just it's just fairy tales. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 
But I don't actually know why they face the Kaaba, because obviously if you were in Japan, then you'd be facing west. So it wouldn't be the Rise of the Sun kind of thing. Well, I, like, I, I don't know. Like, I've I've never actually looked in, like in India if they face east or if they face west. Because technically, even in India, you would face west, right? But if everyone has to face in the same direction, then everyone mm-hmm. would have to face east. Um, so, like, I, I don't know. Yeah, like I said, I, it, it's, you know, it's so bizarre. I mean, they're, they're, they're talking about, I think there was a fatwa that came out recently about prayers in space. I'm like, how does that work? <laughs> you just point yourself out. <laughs> like, no, but seriously, especially in zero gravity, you're floating around. Like, you know, are you like, you know, that that is the flying carpet for Christ's sake. Like, just... I think, I think that should be the exception for prayer. You're in space. You don't need to worship anyone. It's, it's a no man's land. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, whatever. That's, that's bizarre. Um, okay. So, I wanted to talk to you about your podcast because I had been working on one with uh, with Nikki for a while, and I mean it was just getting a little uh, the logistics of it were getting a bit uh, hard because Nikki. yeah because she was out in Australia and I'm here and we were kind of doing the same thing we were speaking to people who had left uh, different yeah. faiths so mm-hmm. and one of the things we were trying to focus on were the similarities that all the Palestinian states face so I mean. You know, if you speak with Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, uh, Mormons. Yeah, we can't do the same thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I've listened to a few of them. Like, uh, how long have you guys been doing this? Um, well, Cole started doing it um, about six months ago. Uh, I recently joined, like, in the last two months. Right. Um, so, yeah, and I don't really do the interviews with the other apostates so we've had quite a few um people from different faiths we've had ex-muslims we've had, we've had ex-jews we've had ex-christians ex-mormons uh ex-jehovah's witnesses um i think we've had a few ex-hindus as well um and they're not all atheists some of them have changed to a different religion um some of them have had multiple religions um and yeah we just we just let them talk about their journey out of faith yeah okay but like i said that's one of the things i'd always remark though is like the the, the similarities mm. so like one of the things that's kind of common across the board is shunning yeah and then you know then from there there's different degrees of it um like i don't know like i don't know if any of the mormons you've uh, you guys have had on um i know you said you didn't specifically speak to some of the other faiths uh did they have because I've was, I was spoken to uh, one ex-Mormon and she was talking about how at one point the Mormons also had something called blood atonement, which was killing of apostates, right? So, um, oh, wow. uh, so I was just wondering if, if any of the Mormons you've spoken to had talked about I that. Think we've, I think we've had one ex-Mormon. Um, I actually haven't listened to that podcast. Mm. Uh, but there have been others. The shunning is definitely in there, um, especially when we when Cole interviewed the ex-Jew, mm-hmm. there was a lot of shunning there. Um, there was shunning in ex-Jehovah's Witnesses because they're quite a tightly knit uh, community and really you're very, very dependent on them because they're like a cult. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of comparisons between other religions and Islam Yeah, I in, mean, terms of, in terms of the leaving. Yeah. And I mean getting off the religious thing for a second I mean there's a lot of like it's 
you have the religious, but then any kind of dogmat, dogmatic ideology, right? So, you know, be it white supremacy, be it, you know, you know communism under Stalin or any other dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Uh, now this, you know, these people who take identity and social justice to an extreme, you know, yep. if you don't think exactly the way we do, you're out. You know, we know, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like, okay, fine, the social justice, they're not out to kill you, but they're out to, we'll get you fired, you can't make a living, you can't live your life. Yeah, we'll, you know, they do platform you, they cut you off. And I mean, it's just, it's like this, I, I don't know what it is about this kind of dogmatic thinking that leads people down that road because it's, there's so many similarities across the board in all of them, right? Mm-hmm. It's just the... They're just in different flavors. Yeah, and it's it's you know, and the thing they hate is different. Like they they just aim their hatred towards something else. You know, they all have something else that they something that they hate or whatever, or something that they're preaching. And but the mentality is the same. And uh, I'd spoken to a couple of people, and I think Faith to Faithless might be doing this. I don't know if I'm giving anything away, but uh, whatever. Um, you know, I, I said it would be a good idea to do a, instead of doing like a, a conference on ex-Muslims or a conference on just atheism or anything like that, but have a conference to discuss apostasy in all these faiths and just to have the apostates talk about, okay, so like have a session on shunning, have a session on, you know, threats, have like just talk about the similarities all the way across the board to maybe, yeah, you know. I think that would be good for gaining allies and... That that'd be really good, actually. I, I'm not even like you. Know, this allyship thing, I, 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 it's one of the things like these social justice people just they make me hate the language. Um, and no, but <laughs> well, it just I mean, uh, allies in the sense that we'll we'll have more people on our side. Yeah, it, to me, it was more for like okay, the average person who okay who doesn't know all these actual details or whatever. But if there's something like that, and you make it open to everyone it's like okay look there's all these people from all these different backgrounds talking about you know the things they had similar in leaving you know x and maybe if the average person comes in and sees it and they're like okay they might be able to get it better um yeah like i I understand what you mean by getting allies and you know you want you obviously you know the more people that will speak out the better it is like you know, we're talking about earlier with the people not speaking out about what's going on in Iran or Saudi Arabia or you know places like that like you need more you need more voices but then then you have this thing of allyship where you know like oh if you want to be a good man you should give up your position so a woman can have it or if you want to be a good white person give up your oh, position oh that's not what i meant at all <laughs> yeah. i didn't know that that's what ally meant oh, <laughs> i meant as, oh, no. as friends yeah, yeah no no but okay but that's just it like there's this terminology that like like that's in social justice that's they talk about this social and it's, justice so they're just like the incels they're just way too self-righteous for their own good yeah okay i i said that to someone just the other day um <laughs> you, you you take these people who are woke right and then you have the people who say they're red-pilled and th- <laughs> they they all and then you take converts they're all the same thing they're they, all the same. You know, they, they want to show how good they are at, 
you know, okay, I'm, I'm a convert, so I'm going to be the best, you know, I converted to Islam and be the best Muslim in the world. I, I converted to social justice. I'm going to be the best whatever. It's just a way of trying to convince yourself that you're a good person, except yeah. in, instead of just accepting yourself. Yeah, and it's, I don't know, but it's, it's, it's just, like I said, it's, I listen to them and it's all the same. And it's, uh, at some points, it's almost like kids with a new toy, right? Like, look at me, yeah. look at this, look at this. I have to play with this. I have to take it out. It's all nice and shiny. And it's just... That's exactly how I felt after Sinead O'Connor accepted Islam. Oh. I, was so, I was just laughing. But, <laughs> that that, was not but that was also a bit sad. I mean, because... Well, uh, for a couple of years, it's not like I follow pop culture or anything, but there'd be, you know, uh, for a couple of years, like, there had been a couple articles about her and then, you know, that she wasn't doing well mentally. Yeah. And then this happened. So, you know, did someone take advantage of that? Did, you know, like... She... I, I feel like she was probably told this would be a good move. Yeah, and I, I don't... So Zayn Malik, around about the same time, said that he wasn't a Muslim. And people were going mental over that. Yeah. But again, that gets back to the outrage stuff. I mean, you know, people are looking for something to be pissed off about. And it's just... Yeah. You know, it's, it's easy to find. Um just a couple of last things. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, the work you do with Faithless Ajabi. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, this was started up um, by Zara Kay, right? Yeah. And so, like, I, I'm i a little curious about... So, like, when you say Faithless Ajabi, are you talking specifically about people who are apostates, apostates and who are, you know still not open about it and they're wearing the hijab or like how did that come about so faceless hijabi is all about supporting curious muslim women we mainly focus on women um we do talk to men a lot if uh, you know if they're questioning but our, our services are more towards women because you know our entire staff at the minute all the volunteers are all women and it's just the experience that we can relate to and we we also think that women have a harder time leaving religion than men do. Um, men can still like pass as Muslims even though they aren't practicing, whereas women it's a lot more difficult. Um, so we take the stories of curious Muslim women or um, ex-Muslim women who have recently left faith or have left faith after a time and we just share their struggle. So they write up their stories and we edit them so that they're, you know, readable and we publish them for you know public consumption so that people can understand the struggle okay um like i said i really appreciate your time and thank you very much i just want to ask you like if you have any thing coming up uh where people can get a hold of you any last words i mean i'm i'm a very new sort of player on the whole ex-muslim scene i only started doing this in last year in October um, and you know I'm, I'm still getting to grips with everything so I'm making a lot of mistakes and people are very quick to tell me that I'm making mistakes that doesn't change at all so no I know but it's fine I mean I'm happy like I, I'm, I've come to accept myself as a flawed human after leaving religion so I'm more than happy to just be like okay I made a mistake I'm going to move on with that um, 
I do a weekly podcast with Out of the Fold, so there's that to look forward to. I do two videos a week on YouTube. Um, sometimes they're kind of whatever, but most of the time they're based around Islam and my leaving it and how I'm coping with it. Um, and yeah, uh, there are, I, I'm good friends with Zara K at the minute, so we have planned a video to do. I'm not sure when that's coming out, um, but I'm most easily reachable by Twitter. I'm, I've noticed that a lot of people are adding me on Facebook. Please stop doing that <laughs> because I don't use my Facebook. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's about it. All right. Well, thank you again very much. And thank you everyone for listening. And I'll be